What's up, Asgardians? Welcome to the Jesus of Movies podcast, where we search movies for lines, scenes, characters, and themes that trace truth in the gospel. I'm Kevin Carlock. I'm here with my fellow Marvel fan, Graham Hooten, and our hope is that you'll join us on the great journey of storytelling by asking thoughtful questions about why certain movies and moments resonate or don't resonate, what that might say about the movie, about you, and perhaps about humanity as a whole. Today we're talking about Thor, and Graham, my one question for you is, what does it mean to be a worthy king? Maybe somebody who values uh, his subjects more so than he values his own personal desire for vengeance or revenge. I feel like we see a great change with Thor over the course of this movie, and I am super excited to be diving into our first MCU film with you today. Yeah, I'm super excited too, because this is my favorite Marvel movie, and it's a top 25 all-time top favorite 25. movie of mine, so I'm curious as to where it lines or where it falls in your rankings of Marvel films or elsewhere. So I think it might be top five. I am a sucker for the Avengers Infinity War uh, kind of expansion. Infinity War is probably the movie that I have rewatched the most over the past two years, um, oddly enough. But I love that one. I love Thor Ragnarok. That's a completely different Thor that we're getting in that film. Uh, I think Captain America Civil War would be up there with me. Did I say original Iron Man? No. Maybe original Iron Man. Yeah, I think I would throw that in there as well. But maybe Thor may, might make my top five. I'd have to spend more time carving out my list. For you, why is this one uh, your favorite Marvel film? It just feels so non-Marvel to me in some ways. Like, I think when I think of Marvel, I think of like who's got the bigger fist, like who's going to have the one-up of the stronger superhero power. But for me, this movie is kind of about laying aside power and glory and vanity and sort of... Um, stepping outside of yourself and realizing what it really means to serve and to lead. And it's really interesting because Thor in this movie is so different from the Thor we see in Thor Ragnarok, right? Where the opening scene of Ragnarok is Thor dangling from that chain by one foot upside down. And he's like, I bet you're wondering yeah, how I got here, how I got captured or whatever. And they kind of break the fourth wall out of the gate. And so the tone is clearly established as mm-hmm. comedic and light and humorous and, um, This movie feels deeply dramatic, deeply Shakespearean. Um, It reminds me of Hamlet or The Lion King, where you sort of have like the father has kind of been removed from the throne or office, and there's kind of this contesting between the brothers or the rivals for the throne in its stead, and there's kind of this kingdom divided, and the protagonist, at least as far as we follow the story, is kind of a you know, sent or exiled or leaves that place and then returns in the end. It just, this is, it feels very Shakespearean. It feels like the Lion King. It feels a lot more dramatic than maybe like an Iron Man too. Yeah. He speaks very Shakespearean, um, Mm -hmm. which kind of is something they phase out over the course of the MCU, but a lot of dramatic diagonal shots, uh, a lot of brooding, (laughs) which I feel, I feel like is very Shakespearean, uh, so, yeah, I think I would agree with you on that front. Again, we don't get as much of the funny Thor. Maybe we get a more subtly funny Thor as opposed to, you know, fat Thor near the end of the MCU when he's a uh, much goofier, kind of alcoholic character. But, um, yeah, he, he just is probably one of the best developed characters, I would say, over, over the course of the last 10 years of, of Marvel's universe. Yeah, you mentioned the diagonal shots. There's a certain film mechanical name for it that I, that escapes me but i'm not a fan of the overuse of them here i think a little bit goes a long way like a spice on a burrito but 
this thing is drowned in yeah. those diagonal shots. And I get the the symbolism of sort of this isn't really home. Things are not quite right. You know, Thor belongs in Asgard, not on Earth. But like, it's just smothered. And uh, I have a close friend in L.A. who says he think that he thinks Kenneth Branagh just can't direct. Like he's got a good sense of story, but he just has no sense of cinematography. And I could see this being sort of like a, an example that he would cite for that. But I like Kenneth Branagh. We talked about him. He plays Professor Lockhart in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. But he does give that Shakespearean touch here because that's kind of his background. I feel like that's a little bit of his Hollywood calling card. He's directed things like Hamlet and Othello. He's also acted. He plays the lead role of Hamlet in the film adaptation Hamlet or one of the many film adaptations of Hamlet. Um, But anyways, yeah, I, I like him. But this movie has a crazy story of uh, coming into production. It's if you just Wikipedia Thor 2011, the subtitled tab development is a novel. I mean, this movie's passed many hands to direct. We saw many different A-listers contend to be Thor. At one point, it was going to be Daniel Craig. At one point, it was going to be Tom Hiddleston, who ended up playing Loki in this movie, and I think is a great Loki. So good. At one point, it was going to be Samuel L. Jackson, if you can believe that. Uh and many, many others, many in between. And uh, yeah, this project just seems to have been passed from desk to desk for over a decade. And finally, in 2011, they made it happen. Yeah, and I think it's a uh, obviously a development off of Marvel's original comics, but I love the whole idea of taking mythology and bringing it to life. And I think that's what they do here with Norse mythology. I think that's what makes me uh, love the Percy Jackson series by Rick Riordan and uh, and the development of that is these ideas that were once read about as kids actually could be real. Um, and I love even um, just seeing one of the characters take the book off the shelf and read about Thor and read about Loki and struggle to believe that, that is actually true. And maybe there's some biblical parallel even in, in that small instance there. Yeah, I think so. Another thing I think I really love about this movie is the music. I think a lot of the Marvel music is a little bit immemorable to me. Is that a word? Not memorable? But I think that this... Thor movie has extremely memorable music to me. I listen to it in the car. I listen to it when I study. I'm a huge movie music guy and just listen to some of this awe and splendor. I've already professed how much I like this movie, and I don't think you like it as much as I do, but you like it. My question for you is, what do you think keeps this movie from maybe more widescreen popularity and acclaim? Or would you say it already has those things? I guess I'm thinking that, like, my Marvel friends, if I were to ask them, like, their, you know, top five favorite Marvel movies, I feel like this Thor doesn't really come to mind for most people. I think because we don't get a super charming Thor. I think that's what makes... Iron Man so good from the start is that Robert Downey Jr. is just so incredibly charming as uh, Tony Stark and as Iron Man. Uh, and even in the Guardians of the Galaxy series, we get Chris Pratt p- playing Peter Quill, so charming. Tom Holland, 
uh, as Spider-Man, super charming. And I think Thor, Chris Hemsworth as Thor in the later franchise is really charming. But, you know, I don't think Thor in this movie is especially a likable character in the sense that I I wouldn't want to, like, necessarily go and hang out with him in the way that I would want to maybe spend a an afternoon hanging out with any of the other MCU characters. So I think for me, that's kind of what holds it apart. And also, uh, I wonder if Natalie, Natalie department, Natalie Portman departing from the franchise for a shorter period of time affects this. Cause she isn't, uh, as deeply ingrained in some of the later Thor stuff as a lot of the other characters that are introduced in, in earlier MCU single films, uh, you know, for example, Pepper Potts and Iron Man appearing in Infinity War. Like, we don't get much Natalie Portman down the road. So I wonder if that kind of erasure is, is challenging in the same way that, um, you know, Edward Norton as the Incredible Hulk is kind of not super rewatchable because he got replaced by Mark Ruffalo. Interesting point. I buy the second one more than the first one. Or I, maybe I buy the first point's validity, but I don't agree with it because I think Thor is really charming. I, or, like, I watched this movie uh with my roommates one of them is patron scott bahacek who had never seen this movie before in his life and he said that his favorite part was kind of the interaction exploring new mexico and earth for the first time where thor is sort of handed a change of clothes and he says this will suffice uh and this mortal form has grown weak i need sustenance and they go to a diner and he smashes a glass this drink i like it uh like getting to see the comedy of uh this kind of very stately high uh addiction god coming down and you know just being totally out of place in rural new mexico Mm -hmm. and so i guess maybe his charm to your point isn't as much the robert downey jr charisma as it is sort of the confidence the unwavering confidence that he knows a world that he actually doesn't um yeah maybe that's not the right way to phrase it but i i find him entertaining and he's my favorite character in the movie i think yeah i think he's just not as self-aware in this movie and you obviously referenced Thor Ragnarok breaking the fourth wall where he is hyper self-aware. And so, you know, for some people I would say that's probably more appealing, but whatever your flavor of ice cream is. Well, I could talk about this movie all day, but I've got some stuff I think we really want to get to in the awards. So do you want to kick it off with your Lazarus award for the high key gospel moment of Thor? So you shared with me earlier what your Lazarus Award is going to be, and I think that actually might be a little bit more fitting to lead with than mine. So in hope of maybe hitting it head on, do you want to lead us off with your Lazarus Award instead? Yeah, sure. No problem. Uh, So my Lazarus Award goes to Thor laying down his life. Brother, whatever I have done to wrong you, whatever I have done to lead you to do this, I am truly sorry. But these people are innocent. Taking their lives will gain you nothing. So take mine and end this. Not over. Later, you're safe. You're safe. 
I think that this is the big moment of the movie for me in drawing the gospel parallel, even though typically we see that high key gospel moment or the moment of highest resonance and the climax, typically at the end of act three of a three act structure. Thor, this, this film follows a very clear act structure, three act structure. So the first act would sort of be like, will Thor become a worthy king? And that takes place primarily in Asgard. And the answer is no, Thor is actually going to be cast out of Asgard and sent to earth. Act two, maybe the middle 50 to 60% of the film is Thor on Earth. And the question of that act would be, is Thor going to become a worthy king? And the answer of that act is yes, with a clear midpoint, kind of differentiating between act 2A and 2B, where Thor is unworthy. He does not pick up the hammer from Coulson's uh, lair, I guess. And so then act three would be like, will Thor restore balance to Asgard and um, extinguish Loki's threat or sort of make everything right, I guess, now that he has been proven worthy. And so that's a very clear 3X structure. It makes a lot of sense. I think it's great writing. But I guess what's interesting is that I think they actually overextend the second act's climax. I think that this big moment where Thor lays down his life is so good and so big that it actually feels like Act 3 is a little bit tacked on to the end of it. Like you feel like, oh, there's more to this movie. And I think if they could have pulled back a little bit on some of the music and some of the way the shots are framed and the dramatic elements of that moment, we would have a more compelling Act 3. But anyways, this Act 2 climax, Thor laying down his life for uh, his friends and for the people in New Mexico, I think, uh, really sells the Jesus story to me in a compelling way. It brings me to tears. So... Without further ado, this is John 10, a great chapter for Jesus laying down his life, apart from actually reading the story of Jesus' death and resurrection in the later parts of the four gospel accounts. So here's verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so this is what we see with Thor here. He lays down his life only to take it up again. He's willing to pay the ultimate price and sacrifice. And because there's a lot I want to get to today, I think I'm going to let you guys fill in the blanks. You get the idea. This is a huge moment. It's the one that uh, I think of when I think of this movie. Yeah. Armorless Thor in uh, nothing but a flannel and t-shirt and jeans walking to meet the destroyer. And I think that's a good picture of Jesus approaching the cross with great vulnerability, even though he is God. He is like God. Uh, in human flesh and, and uh, that level of vulnerability again, knowing that uh, he might not get out alive. Um, in Jesus's case, knowing that he for sure will not get out alive. Um, I can understand why that is emotionally, emotionally resonant with you and with me as well. Yeah, it's, it's on a short list of big movie moments that really explicitly show the gospel, like like Braveheart or Frozen or The Lion King or Lord of the Rings. Like there, There's not a ton of these incredible, like, visual depictions of what Jesus did for us. And I guess my prayer is that I would be like Jane played by Natalie Portman in this scene. What's he doing? Like, no, don't do this. You know, oh my gosh, he's going to die because Jesus actually does Mm -hmm. die. So uh, give me your Lazarus award. So my Lazarus award goes to Thor promising to return to earth. I must go back to Asgard, but I give you my word. I will return for you.
And so for me, this is such a strong parallel to Jesus's ministry. The idea that God came to earth in the form of man, tries to convince humanity uh, that he is who he says he is. He sacrifices himself on behalf of humanity, and it's upon his resurrection that the disciples look on him and actually believe in the risen God. Think of uh, Doubting Thomas, which Thomas probably gets a bad rap in the Gospels because he's called Doubting Thomas. He had a lot of great moments earlier. Read about him. Um, But I I think that's so clearly gospel. Um, And still, in this final moment, when Thor goes back to Asgard, he promises Jane that he will return to be with her on Earth once again. Why? Because he loves her. Um, And I think this is a clear picture of God's love for us. And uh, the verse I'm going to reference here is Hebrews 9.28, which says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. And so uh, in the first half of that verse, uh, Jesus deals with sin. And I think that's what Thor is doing here, walking vulnerably before the destroyer, pleading on the behalf of humanity, willing to give his life in place of theirs. Um, So that's what he's doing here. In the second half of that verse, uh, he promises to return to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. So this is us awaiting on earth for the second coming, that one day Jesus will come and restore earth uh, and will merge earth and heaven and we will uh, be rightfully in relationship with God and be able to see him fully face to face. And so uh, I think that's the promise here. We see at the end of the film, Jane continues to look for Thor and Thor uh, asks Heimdall and Heimdall says that she continues to look for him. So there's kind of these two lovers that are in different spaces that know that one day they'll be reunited. I think that's a clear depiction of our relationship with God, knowing that one day we will be fully uh, reunited, uh, either in death or in the second coming. So that's why this scene specifically wins my Lazarus Award. That's great. It's a clear parallel. And I told you this yesterday, but I think Jane's kiss there to... Thor is a top five all-time favorite movie kiss of mine. She absolutely sends it. And (laughs) now I wonder if you will be able to watch that scene ever again without thinking of me. So I'm already potentially regretting having said that. (laughs) Well, I'm waiting on the Kevin Carlock YouTube video, top five movie kisses of all time. I mean, that's like, that's a hundred thousand views waiting to happen, Kev. Oh man, it's going to be a lot of Will and Elizabeth from Pirates of the Caribbean in there, but definitely this one is going in there. Man, I, I do. I will say my personal favorite is... Uh, Hermione and Ron in The Chamber of Secrets and Deathly Hollows Part 2. All right, I'm throwing it to you, Kev. What is your Mary Magdalene Award for low-key gospel moment in Thor? Yeah, there's a lot to say there. It's, it almost like pains me to have to move on. Like this this episode could be like so, like I just love this movie. Yeah, but, I got it. <laughs> uh, because we want to go narrow and deep on this podcast, we're really trying to surface level hit the highlights of several moments and then go really kind of into one moment. Uh, and that's the idea behind the pulpit pick. And so this is my pulpit pick, and it goes to Thor's mother's line, there's a purpose to everything your father does. What hope is there for Thor? There's always a purpose to everything your father does. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I think about the gospel. I think about God and how he has a purpose for the things that he does. And maybe as Christians, we think about Romans 8, 28, you know, that God is going to work everything for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And maybe we don't really know what that means, but it's kind of comforting and it kind of makes us think that, you know, maybe there's a purpose for everything. And I would even say most of my non-Christian friends at least want to believe that there's a purpose to everything in their life, that everything that happens to them is somehow connected and that um, 
our lives do follow these narratives that kind of have a causal foundation where like if x happens then y happens because that's what's fair that's what should happen or or even if y doesn't happen in the way you think that somehow we're going to get to y through a you know a digression and I, I think people just want this sense of like uh the events and the happenings and the feelings of our lives are significant and they're connected and that we're all kind of building to something um, and so that even if something doesn't seem to have purpose at the present time, it might bear purpose in the future. But I really wonder, like, is this actually a biblical concept? Like, to what extent can we take this line from Thor's mom, there's a purpose to everything your father does, and claim that that's actually true of God the Father in Christianity? And so to this, I turn to the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church, the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is a document that's hundreds and hundreds of years old and it's been reformed just like the american constitution and the bill of rights think of it as that um, and so chapter three deals with this idea and it's entitled of god's eternal decree and so there's kind of eight subsections we're going to fly through them it's going to sound like a lot it's going to be overwhelming but i'm going to try to walk you through it even though inevitably i won't be able to read the many 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 verses that are listed as sort of like here's where we see this in the text uh, for each subpoint, which I know is frustrating. So I'm admitting that this is an, an inherently bad method of going through the Westminster Confession. But I think for us to really believe that there's a purpose to everything our father does, as Thor wants to believe of Odin and this hammer, we need to see that this is actually true in the Bible and not just an idea that we have in our heads. And if it is true, we need to take it seriously. We want to worship the Lord with our, our mind as well as with our hearts and our soul. And we want to believe that in doing so, it's going to foster a heart level affection that is only going to grow. The mind and the heart are going to are spurning each other towards devotion in Christ, as we'll see in these very words. So without further ado, I know there's a lot of prefacing, so just bear with me. This is number one. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So lots of verses are here are listed um, and explained as will be in the future subpoints, but for this one we've got Psalm 33, Ephesians 1, Psalm 5, James 1, Hebrews uh 11 habakkuk 1 first john 1 and acts 2 and i think what this subpoint is really trying to say is god freely ordains everything yet does not author sin but rather allows it that would be like the kev spark notes summary which is admittedly unreliable i did not get a seminary we are not theologians <laughs> professionally but subpoint two although god knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or is that which would come to pass upon such conditions this one is the most confusing of the eight to me that's getting at this idea of tension between foreknowledge and causation but i don't really understand it but the first half is saying that god is omniscient and so at the very least he he definitely has foreknowledge biblically speaking Verse, or sub point three, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. And so there it is. Maybe that's the one that you're afraid of, but that's where this train inevitably goes, which is that some humans and some angels are predestined to everlasting life and some to everlasting death. And again, there's so much scripture here that's listed and explained and commented on, but we just have to keep moving. This is subset four. 
these angels and men thus predestined and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed and their numbers so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. This is basically an extension of the last point saying that the numbers of the elect and the damned are fixed. They're unchanging. Subset 5, those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto and all to the praise of his glorious grace. So that was a mouthful, but I think it's basically saying those that are predestined to life are so are so predestined for no reason of their own accord but rather the pleasure and the mercy and the love of christ there's nothing good that a dead person can do to merit being saved it has to be resurrected breathed life from an external source of hope and saving and so i'm going to pause there for questions from you graham before we keep going keep in mind we're talking about thor thor's mom thor's dad odin's promise that whoever shall be worthy will take up this hammer uh, how are we doing so far? So I want to stick with that third point there, uh, which is a little bit more of a Calvinist idea. So you're saying that in context of this film, Odin casts out Thor knowing that he is going to be victorious over the destroyer and ultimately return to Asgard. Or is he kind of like, Hey, maybe you just go try to figure it out on your own. Yeah. So I think that like in Thor, Odin's kind of like, if Thor, my son will become worthy he will merit this hammer and can return home to Asgard. But I think the biblical version of that story would be like when Thor is worthy, he will return to Asgard bearing this hammer. And not only is it like, a, I don't know when, but it is going to happen. It's like, no, no, no. I know the second of the day. I know the clothes he's going to be wearing, the food that will be in his stomach, the number of hairs on his head. Who could stop the will of Odin? He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. If this God is for real, he knows everything. And there's nothing that happens that he does not account for. Um, so that would be like the gospel version of Odin's sending the hammer to earth. Hmm. Yeah. So maybe God is... Uh, God the Father is more of Odin in that scenario, Thor being the son, Jesus, but a sin, a sinful son, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so let's keep going. Subset 6. As God hath obtained the elect unto glory, so hath he by the eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. I think this might be my favorite. So this is kind of saying, like, if God controls the ends, then God controls the means as well. So for those who are predestined to salvation through the grace of Christ, we can see that uh, the means of that happening, the effectual calling, like the effective, the successful calling, the justification, the being declared righteous, the adoption, God is now your father, sanctification, being made like his son, and perseverance in grace, you can't lose this, all unto death, these means... Uh, are accomplished by God as well as the end. And I think so many Christians actually don't believe this. We think that God has ordained the end, but that it's up to us in the meantime. Whereas this is clearly saying that the Bible is saying that God actually accomplishes our own sanctification, that there's nothing we can do to lose this. This is the beauty of Reformed theology, assurance of salvation. How can you know that you're actually saved? Because Jesus says that you're actually saved. He doesn't let go of anybody. Oh, love that will not let me go. He's relentless. He's the hound of heaven. And uh, so the last thing tacked on to the end of this is uh, they're saying that like, 
these means don't apply to any of the unsaved. So you can't have one without the other. Uh, and then subset seven, the rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. So this is kind of the dark side of the coin of what we're sort of reading about here, which is that God's ordaining of wrath for the unrepentant sinner is, is beyond our human comprehension and likewise accomplished by God for his glory and justice. That's all they're saying is that we don't really understand this, but like this is scriptural and clearly God works all things for his glory and for his justice. And this is his plan. And I know that's disturbing. And you can always email us at Jesus at gmail.com. We may or may not have compelling answers, but this is the beginning of a conversation, not the end of it. Subset eight, the doctrine of this high mystery of predestination. I love that language. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. So this one is kind of like a postscript almost. It's basically saying uh, Christians ought to handle these biblical truths with care, being motivated both to obey and to attain uh, the assurance this assurance of their eternal election um, and that this should inspire reverence and admiration of God, like a higher view of God and then a humility and an obedience and man, a lower, a more appropriate, correct, biblically true view of ourselves. Or as Shai Lin says at the end of his song, Election, it's time we see God's sovereignty and his primacy, his holy dynasty running things by divine decree. Why does he choose some and not others to see Jesus? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And that's a reference to Psalm 115.3 in that last line. And so there's a lot of scripture here, and I'm just so mad that I can't do it justice. But the Westminster Confession of Faith is telling us reliably over hundreds and hundreds of years of brilliant Christian thinking reformed and shaped by the Bible as we come to read and know it, that we can trust Thor's mother's words here. There is a purpose to everything our father does, and that is good news. Hmm. Yeah, there's so much to dig in, th- in there. Uh, so much to dig into there and again we're barely scratching the surface on that but I know Kev you specifically are always open for conversations about uh, reformed theology and I think that'd be a great thing to contact us and email about or just have a conversation because it is a Pandora's box that we're opening there but it really is and like if there's not a part of you that's having pushback I I almost question whether you're really grappling with it like the part of you should be thinking like this is disturbing but I would challenge you to take Timothy Keller's advice and doubt your doubts. What do we really know and why? And what is our, our true reliable source of truth? If it's not the Bible, we really need to be asking some questions about where we're getting ideas from because we can believe that Jesus is the son of God because Jesus says so in the Bible. Any other method, whether it's history or science that wants to affirm biblical truths, we're basically making history or science or whatever it is into the measure by which truth is ascribed. And we don't the Bible should be the standard by which truth is ascribed and deemed. Anything else is going to fall on itself. And so this Westminster Confession of Faith is leaning into that tradition of Scripture as the inerrant, infallible authority. Um, and there's so much rich beauty. And as our minds continue to know this God better, our hearts will begin to understand better and better who we're worshiping. And we'll have a higher desire to worship because we'll, he, he will begin to reveal to us his glory. Um, and that's just a beautiful thing. Like when I... 
when I sing like in Christ alone or when I sing um, uh, how I need you, oh, how I need you, whether it's like a deep, deep hymn or like a more shallow worship song or anything in between, like I want to know who I'm singing to. And those words are going to come to life as I get to know him better mm. with my mind. So that's the case for for spending your time on these things. It's not arbitrary. Don't buy the devil's lie that these things are are unknowable or that they're unworth your time because they absolutely are. Mm. So sorry for the soapbox there. <laughs> a beginning of a conversation. I know that was long, but hey, we're narrow and deep. The rest of the awards will be shallow. So take me to your Mary Magdalene Award for a low-key gospel moment in Thor. So my Mary Magdalene Award is Thor explaining the nine realms to Jane. Oh, dude, I love this scene so much. <laughs> and it's also my pulpit pick. Um, and so maybe bringing into context with some of you, some of what you talked about. Um, I love the line, your ancestors called it magic. You call it science. But I come from a place where they are one and the same thing. So that's, a, that's something I'll reference. But I really want to center on this line. Now you see it every day without realizing. Your ancestors called it magic, and you call it science. Well, I come from a place where they're one and the same thing. What is that? My father explained it to me like this, that your world is one of the nine realms of the cosmos, linked to each other by the branches of Yggdrasil, the world's tree. Now you see it every day without realizing the images glimpsed through, uh, what did you call it, this, uh, this Hubble telescope. Hubble. <sighs> Hubble telescope. <laughs> Tell me more. So the nine realms. Thor, the god figure, reveals that the fundamental truths Jane is discovering about the galaxy through her research actually fit into a grander narrative about the universe and why it is the way that it is. So what Jane has discovered about the universe actually points to a bigger story that the god figure, Thor, continues to reveal to us. And so there's some fundamental characteristics of humanity um, that I look at and I think a lot of humans would look at and um, over the course of time. Uh, it's that we have a moral compass, um, which to varying levels affects our choices. And our moral compass, which is what we want to do, often conflicts with our actions, what we actually do, which leaves a gap between uh, wanting to live perfectly and actually living perfectly. I think this is a fundamental idea that any re world religion tries to grapple with. How is it that we know what is good, uh, but we don't actually do what is good? And so what might this truth point to about who we are? Um, also, we got fundamental characteristics of the world, which is what Jane's research centers are on. on. Uh, we're living on a perfect planet that can sustain life. I did a little bit of research deep diving here about um, how our Earth is unique from anywhere else in the galaxy. There's this idea of the Goldilocks principle, uh, that our planet is just close enough to the sun and just far away enough from any other galactic center to sustain human life. Um, we've got the fact that the Earth orbits perfectly around the sun, which sustains seasons, life, plant and crop growth, etc. We couldn't live on Earth without that. We've got plate tectonics. Uh, Earth is the only planet with plate tectonics and shifting landscapes, which ensures more biodiversity and protects against uh, extinction of animal species and of humanity. And We've got the perfect uh, chemical combination of carbon dioxide, oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen, and other essential elements to life. And so, um, I've, again, I referenced fundamental characteristics of humanity. I also will reference fundamental characteristics of our, our planet from a scientific perspective. Uh, and what if, uh, and this is us as, as humans, what if these fundamental truths 
uh, we recognize in our relationships and in our scientific world actually pointed to some greater cosmic truth. Again, what if what Jane was seeing in the sky through her research actually pointed to some grander truth uh, that she would get the chance to discover? And so the verses I pulled here um, are Matthew 25, 33 through 40, which may not, uh, again, tie directly in the way that you might think they will, but I'm going to read through them and explain. Quote, and this is Jesus um, talking, he says, quote, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you cared for me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and show you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it for me. So we're asking, where do we see Jesus around us? Like, how, where are the greater, greater cosmic uh, truths that we see in, in the world around us that we see every single day? We actually get to see Jesus in the poor and the lowly and the sick and in the imprisoned. And to get more meta, isn't that what this podcast is all about? Trying to demonstrate that the great story of Jesus is the fundamental truth of the universe. And in it, uh, we more deeply understand ourselves, our own lives, and we realize that um, the Jesus narrative and Jesus himself is all around us in movies, in music, in art, in science, and anything. And so that's why that line um, from Thor really gets me. Now you see it every day without realizing. Like that's what we're doing in Jesus in movies is that we, we watch it, we, we see the gospel in a movie, we hear the gospel in a song, we experience the gospel in a piece of art. Like it's all around us. It's never not been there. Um, and it's almost like we're putting on the rose-colored glasses and we get to see what has always actually been there. Um, and so I just love the idea of being blind and then seeing, I think Jesus does that with the blind man. And sight is such a clear um, motif throughout the Bible. But um, yeah, that's why for me that Thor explaining the nine realms to Jane wins my Mary Magdalene award. Oh, I, I so love it. Cause not only do I like what you said, but I really like the methodology, like your approach to the award. Like, so you pick the scene that kind of has this big idea of, Thor explaining things to Jane, but then you narrow it in on a specific line. It's been all around you and you don't know it. And I think good analysis, good parallel drawing is always based on the specifics, right? Like it's one thing to say the movie Thor is kind of like the gospel. It's another thing to say the silver spherical metal breastplate that fastens Thor's red cape to his right shoulder shows a parallel to this verse in Ezekiel 11. Mm -hmm. Like, like specifics are helpful. And I think you did that well there. I, I want to ask you this question that kind of it appears to butt heads with what I said in the previous award. If the Bible is our primary source of capital T truth for who God is and what that means for us as and like who we are in relation to who God is, then what do we make of like these parallels in art or these kind of clues in creation or nature? Like, cause you're sort of arguing like it's all around you. It's always kind of been there. You just have to kind of perceive it or discern it. Versus the Bible, it's very kind of explicitly saying in text, in human letters and writing, like, Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Um, like, how do we make that, um, like, how do we relate those two methods of God's revelation? Hmm. 
Yeah, I think there's the reality that God is not creating any new truth around us. Uh, one of the things that I've been talking about with our group of high school kids that I work with is that um, a lot of our common prayers are like, God, I pray that you would like be with this person, or I pray that you would like be in this situation. It's like the reality is God is already like, if, if God is omnipresent, like God is with every person. Um, not, and I'm not talking about the sense of like dwelling within every person because I think that's Holy Spirit, which is exclusive for believers. But, right. um, like we're, we should, I think rather be asking like, God reveal to me where you already are. And the reality is he is already all around us. And so I think the, the fundamental capital T truth that we see in the Bible is actually, um, kind of a key that allows us to unlock the other little hints at the truth all around us. Um, it's kind of like giving us the treasure map and allowing us to go find the treasure all around us. And I think that's one of the most exciting things for me about the gospel is that um, once we understand it and grasp it, we realize that, um, oh my gosh, like this whole world is my mission field. And like that person who is my neighbor who lives next door to me is no longer just like a person that I see like whenever I leave my house. They're actually like one of God's beloved children. And that'll completely frame new context for our relationship. And so... Um, yeah, I, I guess I would say that like the big T truth informs our ability to, uh, see the little hints at uh, smaller truths. Yeah. With the caveat that like the smaller truths can also get us interested or curious about the big T truth and can kind of be a signpost, right? A hundred percent. Cause you see people whose testimonies are like, honestly, I spent a year in South Africa and it was just so beautiful. And eventually I had to think like, there has to be a creator behind all this. Like there's Mm -hmm. just too much beauty. Like this couldn't be a coincidence. Like you do kind of have these stories here and there of like, um, these non Bible related means of God's revelation that pointed me to the Bible or to a church. And then I experienced the Bible and yeah. So good, uh, good thoughts there. That's a, a good combo to have. I'm giving my false prophet award, uh, to Thor's quote. These people are innocent. Brother, whatever I have done to wrong you, whatever I have done to lead you to do this, I am truly sorry. But these people are innocent. Taking their lives will gain you nothing. So take mine and end this. So I want to make an important preface with this award, and Graham, we've talked about this, so butt in here uh, where you see necessary. The truest form of the false prophet award, this is the trickiest award, but I think in its purest sense, it's critiquing an argument that the movie makes that is wrong, that is not biblical. And so like a good example would be like a movie arguing like vengeance satisfies, like we should take justice into our own hands and accomplish revenge. That's like a common false prophet, I feel like. But in this movie, like, we don't really have a lot of that. And a lot of times, like, our uh, false prophets ending up sort of being like this format. If I run with this gospel parallel, then I make this caveat. And so, like, that's the kind of the false prophet I've taken here. It's a lesser, admittedly worse form of the false prophet award. Uh, Because I think the gospel parallel in this movie is so strong, like, Thor laying down his life to the destroyer and to Loki being willing to die so mirrors the Jesus story that my false prophet award is saying, 
if we suppose that to be true, if we suppose this to be clearly aligning with the gospel story, this is one part of it that breaks down, that doesn't work. This is where the movie is not portraying the gospel story. So when I say these human beings are innocent, I don't think at all for a second that Kevin Feige or Kenneth Branagh or the cast of Thor or the movie makers or Paramount Pictures, I don't think that this movie is arguing that humanity is innocent, that there is no moral corruption in humanity. I think you'd have to be really dumb to argue that. But I think what I am arguing is that if we run with this gospel parallel of Thor laying down his life for the innocent people, we would say that unlike in this story, in the gospel story, Jesus lays his down lays his life down for a not innocent people, for a guilty people. And for this we have Romans 5, 6-8. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in the Jesus story, Jesus dies for spiritually dead people with no merit. This is unconditional election. It is undeserved. There is no reason why Jesus should be willing to die for us. It is purely his grace, his affection, his generosity, his mercy. Uh, whereas in Thor, it's like these people are innocent. So like I'm going to lay my lay down my life on principle that like, you know, taking their lives will gain you nothing. Whereas like in the Bible, like we have the price of sin and death. So uh, does that kind of make sense? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I would agree with you. I think if we're trying to fit that specific narrative that um, Thor is Jesus and we, the people who inhabit the town, are humans. Um, yes, I, I think that's one of the great challenges for us, right? To accept the fact that we are not innocent. It's probably the greatest stumbling block to uh, Christianity as a whole, right? Is is admitting that we are broken and that we are in need of a savior. Um so, yeah, I think I would, I would affirm that false prophet award. Yeah, because C.S. Lewis and Mirror Christianity, I think we mentioned this. Like, he says that the gospel only begins to speak once a person is at a point of there is some sense of right and wrong, and I don't meet it. And yep. once you have acknowledged that, and only then are you willing to hear the gospel. Oh, yeah. And, and you're not even willing to accept it. That's just you're willing to hear it at that point. So give me your false prophet award for our potentially a non-biblical argument that this movie makes, or the route that I went, which is not as good, which as I've already made this gospel parallel, here's the caveat. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my false prophet award is that through morally bettering himself, Thor is able to lift his hammer, Mjolnir. Whosoever holds this hammer, if it be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. Thor's character progression sees, uh, again, a sinful prince turn into a, uh, a righteous king after he overcomes his uh, need to rely upon his power after he's willing to lay down his life in order to save somebody else. And, but I think it poses this dangerous idea that Thor almost has to achieve a certain level of uh, moral superiority in order to merit uh, retrieving his powers again. Um, and I think this is specifically challenging if we're to view Thor uh, and we're going to put ourselves as humans in Thor's shoes. Like, through going on a journey and through morally bettering ourselves, like, is that going to allow us to uh, lift the hammer that is salvation and achieve um, in many ways, our, our relationship with God uh, that is that is meriting of salvation. And so um, I got Ecclesiastes 7.7 7 here. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. I think in some ways the movie argues that after Thor has gone through this character arc that he becomes righteous. He is not. In reality, Thor is kind of taking humanity's place here, making them righteous. But 
that's why that specific thread is my false prophet award yeah i see what you're saying i i think it's a weak false prophet just like mine this movie is just so biblical like but yeah i hear you like if it's becoming worthy to enter the pearly gates of heaven yeah it's not going to be our moral status that's going to get us there yeah so a weak false prophet but i'm with you mine's bad too i mean this is just such a good movie like this just it is a lot of clear parallels i know all right kev what is your jesus award so i'm giving my jesus award to thor and I'm going to give you six reasons, three of them plot and three of them character. These are kind of the two building blocks of stories in some ways. So let's go part one, plot. And this is all going to be New Testament. John 1.14, God becomes a man. Thor, the God, becomes a man. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Simple and to the point, God become man. Part two, God surrenders his life for man. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And so we see this with Thor. He lays down his life for his friends, for those who need it. Part three, God returns to his kingdom and rules at the right hand of the Father. And I love this because of the specific imagery of the ascension really parallels the Thor movie. This is Acts 1, 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while the disciples were gazing into heaven, as Jesus went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's going to come again. This is your point. Thor's going to come back for Jane. He promises. So that's the plot. That's how Thor's story mirrors Jesus's story. Now let's see how Thor's character mirrors Jesus's character. And for this, we're going to see it through the triune God, through God the Father, God of Israel in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. First, Thor and God, the mighty warrior. Numbers 16, 31 to 35. This is a vicious passage, vicious R-rated story about uh, God's revenge on the sons of Korah. This is within Israel's nation. This is the God's own people that he is uh, squelching here. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, up with their households and the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol. That is like the Hebrew word for hell there. And the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Fire, earthquakes, Sheol. This is a dark passage. God is a relentless, mighty warrior. God, Thor, the loyal friend. Exodus 33, 11. This is a kind of an interesting, I don't know why I went with this verse. Um, looking for verses as like friend, like how God is a friend to us. I just thought this was kind of interesting. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Um, and so that's kind of an interesting verse about how God and Moses kind of had this special relationship. You know, they had these two 40-day sessions on Mount Sinai, and God is communicating with Moses even though Moses can't see him. But then in this, that's the context for this verse where it's like they did. He was able to see him like they speak face-to-face, kind of this um, incredibly dangerous thought in that historical time period. Like if we see God, we have to die because mm-hmm. that was how it went typically. So, uh, And then lastly, so we talked about God as a warrior, God as friend. What about an intimate, embarrassing romantic? Because this is really the scandalous romance of the gospel. This is where Thor and Jane's romance really mirrors 
God's and ours, or, or Jesus and the church, you know, we talked about this a lot. And so Ezekiel 16, 8 to 14, this is kind of the preface section before God basically says, and you have been an adulterous, unfaithful bride, Israel. But this is the part where that hasn't happened yet. Verses 8 to 14, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and trusted and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty for it was perfect through the splendor that i had bestowed upon you declares the lord god do you hear the language i mean it's over and over and over i gave you this i gave you that i gave you this i gave you that it's like very intentional writing of sort of like the superfluous like over above and beyond going the extra mile like this is the public display of affection that we don't want to see god is just public this is major pda between god and israel here like we get it man <laughs> the first it, verse man. was enough like you were at the age for love you spread the garment covered in the nakedness you entered into a covenant we don't need to hear anymore god says yes you're gonna hear more and everybody's gonna know about it all your neighboring nations are gonna know how much i love you it's gonna be embarrassing this is the big sloppy wet kiss in the middle of a public setting that is so uncomfortable and so embarrassing, but that is the God of the Bible. He is relentless. He is embarrassing. He is coming to get you and he will not stop. And that is what I see with Thor and Jane, that big, absolute fireworks worthy kiss before they go back. Um, so I guess in some ways, like the parallel will be a little bit stronger if like Liam Hemsworth, the one absolutely sending the kiss to Jane Foster instead Chris of kind of the other way around. Liam. So, oh my oh gosh. My goodness. I mix it up because Liam actually <laughs> uh, auditioned for the part and didn't get it. Oof. Kevin Feige didn't think he was good enough. Awkward so R.I.P. Uh, but yeah, anyways, God is this intimate, embarrassing romantic, and it's cool that we get to be a part of that. And so that's how I see Thor resembling the God of the Bible here, partly in story, partly in character. Mm, love that. Uh, yeah, the other story that came to mind was Prodigal Son, classic but the father, you know, running after his son and, and kissing him. And yeah. especially if he's been eating the the, uh, the pods that the pigs have been eating, that can't be, uh, be, too, be too nice. But his love is that embarrassing, even as uncomfortable as it makes me feel. So give me your Jesus Award. So I'm actually giving my Jesus Award to Odin. Oh, thank goodness. I'm glad you are, TBH, because my whole Mary Magdalene was basically like, there's a purpose to everything Odin does. Like, he's this clear God the Father figure, right? Yeah. And so in that sense, it's maybe more of a God the Father award than it is a Jesus award. Um, but on Jotunheim, when Thor goes off to try to kill all the frost giants, uh, Odin comes to clean up his mess and brings justice with Thor's disobedience um, through casting him out. And so you see that in his appeal with the frost giants. He's like, you know, treat his actions as a boy. He's going to give grace to his son who has disobeyed, but also is not going to leave his son's actions unpunished. He is a just king, just in the way that God is a just God, so he casts him out. Um, and so uh, this contrasts uh, to Thor's ideology that righteous anger looks like revenge, which reminds me a lot of Peter and Jesus in the garden prior to Jesus's mm. um, capture and execution. So I'm going to read through that, John 18, 4 through 11. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. 
Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. Quote, I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup your father has given me? And so uh, I see a lot of Peter and Thor here, like, I'm going to strike them. Like, they struck us. We're going to strike them back, and we are going to achieve justice uh, through taking this righteous anger and, and, again, like, taking it out on our enemies. And what we see from Odin here uh, is is not that. He is all about avoiding war, but also about providing justice. So he, he rescues Thor from the situation, does not allow his actions to be unpunished, um, and ultimately, like, they do defeat the frost giants and, and cast them out. And so, um, I don't know. I think Odin, again, in that other line when that you referenced earlier, um, he, he knows what he's, he knows what he's doing. Um, he has this kind of omniscience that, um, maybe if I could combine Heimdall and Odin, you'd get an even more perfect God, the father figure, a God mm-hmm. that is truly omniscient. Um, but I think Odin here is a great King. He does have that misstep with not communicating the truth to Loki. I would say that would be like the big, kind of hole in this argument but other than that i think he he cares for his son he loves him he loves the people of asgard and acts in a righteous way yeah i guess i'd say the only other caveat i see is i feel like when loki is dangling from thor's leg and thor is being held by odin at the very end when they're on the bridge when loki's like i could have done it father i could have done it for you for all of us he's like no loki i i wish like i think a more tender compassionate response in that moment you know, in a lot of ways would have kept Loki hanging on to Thor there. It seemed like a little bit unnecessarily condemning in that moment of absolute uncertainty and desperation. Um, Interesting. I was I was going to ask if you saw some Lucifer-Loki parallels there of God, like, bringing justice towards the son that betrayed him. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, it's hard to really know that much about Satan in some ways. Like, the Bible just is a little bit scant of... Uh, true like passages a lot of it's sort of like making inferences based on parallels that we think refer to satan but like when i think about john milton's paradise lost satan very clear parallel to the loki here like envy of the sun how could he arbitrarily ascribe honor to the sun he's done nothing why is it um election and not merit those kinds of ideas i think loki very much voices in this movie but uh yeah i love the odin pick i didn't mean to suggest that i don't i think he's a great king. He reminds me of Mufasa a lot of ways. I think he does kind of embody that kind of Shakespearean part of the story, tumultuous reign in the kingdom of Asgard. We love it, man. So that's it for the awards and now into the Q&A. But first, an announcement. Need new running shoes? Want to support a local business? Omega Sports sells running shoes and a variety of athletic apparel and equipment both in stores and online at omegasports.com. For online orders of at least $90, they offer free shipping everywhere and use the redemption code JIM for Jesus of Movies. Doing so gives you 10% off your purchase and gives another 10% towards our production costs. Again, that's omegasports.com, code JIM for a discount and to support us. Now onto our Q&A and guest submissions. And we do have a guest this week, but before we get to him, I want to read a quick email that we got um, that was requested to be read. And we love to share stuff like this. Graham and Kevin, on your podcast about The Greatest Showman, you raise a question about value and Christian merits of worldly ambition. For what it's worth, my view is to set the bar high, achieve with all the God-given potential you have, and give him all of the glory for any rewards you have that come your way. 
Additionally, your pursuits, however ambitious, should be pursued in a godly manner. Um, so yeah, just weighing in on that discussion of how much ambition is healthy. Um, I got, got to talk to a good friend of mine lately, actually, who's been very successful in the eyes of the world. He says that he likes feeling that tension, that like if there isn't this tension between like high, high ambition and like, am I doing this to serve God or to glorify me? Then like either he doesn't want the worldly thing bad enough or he doesn't care about God enough, like he's lost his first love. Um, and so like that tension is actually very good and very healthy. And I think that was a very freeing thought for me because I kind of feel that war waging within me as well. Yeah, I think I think I would agree. And the parallel that comes to me is the rich young ruler, um, and it's I don't think it's about the level of wealth that the rich young ruler has. It's hey, are you willing to compromise all of that for like the core truth? And so I think the whole idea of it being hard for a rich man or a successful man or a notorious man or woman to to enter enter into heaven is harder than a camel entering through the night the eye of a needle. I think it's the the wealthier you get and the more you have. Uh, the harder it is to say, hey, I'd be willing to lay that aside to follow Jesus. So I don't think achieving a lot, in, again, is a bad thing. But I think when success becomes the idol and it's the uh, the ends to all things, I think that's when we get put in a, in a tough place. Okay, so this week we have a big treat. We've got my good friend Shapley Davis on. Shapley is live from Los Angeles at USC Film School. Shapley, how are you doing, man? I'm good, brother. Good to see you. Good to hear your voice. How you doing this morning? I'm good. We've been talking about Marvel's Thor, the first, the original, the old school. Great one. So what's one way you've seen the gospel or truth reveal itself uh, in movie you've seen lately or TV show or something you've read or listened to? So I'm actually currently working on this movie at school. At USC, we do a full-length feature film that uh, ten writer, or nine, nine writers come up with and then 10 directors will direct. So you each direct like 10 minutes of it. It's inspired by a true story. It's about um, the number one hitman for Al Capone. His name was Jack McGurn. And his didn't have a dad. His stepdad got murdered, who was kind of like his father figure. Um, grew up boxing and like had a really rough upbringing and ended up joining Al Capone's gang at a very young age. And these guys were terrorizing Chicago and also making tons of money so they were just on top of the world in the 20s and in 30s um and uh eventually tried to like change his life around he tried to turn over a new leaf but when i was reading the story i couldn't help thinking that like i couldn't help thinking that this guy was someone who like a lot of people in our generation now probably every generation is like trying to make himself right like he's done a lot of wrong things and he's trying to you know, become righteous through his own sheer willpower. You know, what, what I think the priest is trying to convey in this, in this scene is that, like, it's not about Jack's abilities here. It's about God's abilities. And, and uh, you know, no one is beyond saving, not even like a, a gangster who's slaughtered tons of, you know, tons of people, but everyone is beyond saving himself. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's one thing that uh, I've seen recently, it's kind of been on my plate, and, this, and maybe you can send me some suggestions, but this could be the first time that this podcast has an impact on an actual feature film before, before it gets made. <laughs> that's awesome. That's that's super cool. Well, well, thanks for coming on and for sharing the parallels, man. Absolutely, man. Best of luck to you guys. Keep doing, keep uh, fighting a good fight. 
Sadly, we have to stop the discussion there, but before we close, here's a quick shout out to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this discussion possible. Courtney, Kristen, Craig, Heather, and Jackson Carlock, Jacob DeRizio, Ben Dunbar, Graham Janet, and Ken Hooten, Daniel Lee, Bess McLawhorn, Mike, John Pabone, Scott Pahacek, new patron, woot woot. Logan Russell, Andy Simmons, Kim Streamer, Clay Young. Thank you all so much for your support. Our monthly production schedule is posted on our Instagram at Jesus of Movies. Our March schedule is about to come out. We're waiting on a couple polls to finish up with patreon it's going to be a disney movie and a space movie are going to be the patron picks and then we've got yeah we've got a good lineup so that'll be posted any day now give us a follow and a like so you can see what movies are up next if you'd like to support the jesus movies podcast patreon is our preferred way of support for one dollar a month you can become a patron and help pick the movies as we just said you can chat it on the podcast and featured on our instagram so if you'd like to join the group please do so at patreon.com slash jesus movies or on the free patreon app Anyone can always write us at jesusandmovies at gmail.com, and we certainly hope you will. And lastly, if you're listening on Apple, please give us a review and let us know what you think. That helps us to learn more about what's working and what isn't, as well as to reach new people. Thank you so much for joining us on the Jesus and Movies podcast, and we hope you found some goodness, truth, and beauty. Know that like Thor, God became man and laid down his life so that we, like Jane, might one day experience unhindered relationship with him in the realm eternal. And we'll see you next week. 